Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa, Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Dungwati. In our top stories on Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Government officials from Nigeria and Cameroon meet to tackle cross-border crime. Explosive claims about South Africa's ruling ANC emerge at state capture inquiry. In economics news, IMF lifts global growth forecast for 2021. And in sports news, Patrice Mutsipe and Yaya clear to run for CAF presidency. The first up, the news with Anne SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. 680 more people have succumbed to COVID-19 related complications in South Africa in the past 24 hours. This puts the national death toll at 41,797. The health department says the cumulative number of coronavirus now stands at 1,423,578. Meanwhile, co-chairperson of the COVID-19 Ministerial Advisory Committee, Professor Salim Abdul Karim says preliminary results of an ongoing study by the National Institute of Communicable Diseases show that Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are effective against the coronavirus variant that has been detected in South Africa. He says data on the effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccines is expected to be released in a few days. In the 44 people we tested in a study done led by Professor Penny Moore, They found that fortunately, it looks at this point that the T cells and the antibodies together may be able to contain this new variant so that it's not leading to large numbers of reinfections. In patients who've been vaccinated, their blood is able to kill the 501YV2 variant. So individuals who've received either the, the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines, that their blood can kill this virus. Morocco is set to become the latest country in Africa after Egypt to roll out a vaccination program against COVID-19. Morocco was hit hard last year when it recorded a high number of cases compared to its neighbours. Health officials say frontline medical staff will have priority. The country has received 2 million doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and is expected to take delivery of half a million doses from China's Sinopharm on Wednesday. Tunisia has pushed back its vaccination campaign to April, while Algeria expects to acquire a batch of Russia's Sputnik V vaccine by the end of this month. The total number of coronavirus cases recorded around the world is now past 100 million. More than a quarter of them have been in the U.S., with India and Brazil having the next highest totals. Britain, which has one of the highest per capita fatality rates in the world, has now exceeded 100,000 deaths. Critics accuse Prime Minister Boris Johnson of being slow to impose lockdowns. Gabriel Scali is a professor of public health at the University of Bristol. 
I was so impressed by the USA. Within a day or two of taking office, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris produced a 200-page strategy and then backed it up that day with executive orders to bring it into place. And there is no strategy for the UK. I'm sorry to say, but I do think the government makes it up as they go along. Tunisian police have blocked the path of hundreds of protesters who are trying to reach the parliament building in the capital, Tunis. It was the latest in a series of demonstrations that have been fueled by frustration at the lack of jobs and spiraling prices. More than 1,000 young protesters had been arrested during the previous protests. Marchers gathered inside parliament. The prime minister was trying to win approval for major reshuffle of his cabinet. Tunisia is in the midst of a severe economic downturn and its ailing public health sector is also under pressure from soaring numbers of COVID-19 infections. And a large number of Republicans in the U.S. Senate have voted against proceeding with the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. Just five out of 50 Republican senators voted with the Democrats to defeat the attempt to declare the trial unconstitutional. Democrat Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the trial must go ahead. It makes no sense whatsoever that a president or any official could commit a heinous crime against our country and then defeat Congress's impeachment powers and avoid a vote on disqualification by simply resigning or by waiting to commit that offense until their last few weeks in office. Trump is accused of inciting insurrection after his supporters stormed Congress earlier this month. Democrats need the support of 17 Republicans to convict him. That's the news. Headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Nigerian and Cameroonian government officials have met to discuss ways to tackle cross-border crimes. The Nigerian delegation at the meeting confirmed receiving some of its citizens who were believed to have committed crimes in neighbouring Cameroon for processing back in Nigeria. Channel Africa's Collins Atohengbe has more from Lagos. Officials of both countries have met on related issues in the past with a standing agreement to cooperate in the relevant areas of crime prevention. But the recent increases in criminal activities across border and the level of insecurity necessitated a current meeting during which leaders from the affected communities expressed grave concern over the almost daily demand for ransom by kidnappers who have now driven most of the people out of their homes. Idi Adamo, one of the leaders and delegates to the meeting, says his people are tired of the stress caused by the development. 95% of my people in Maya and the influence, they sleep outside their houses for the past three, four months. It is unbearable, ransom, every day ransom, every week ransom, every month ransom. We are tired of paying ransom in Maya. We are under siege, total siege. 37 kidnappings in the last four months. 
The member of the Cameroonian delegation took a retrospective look at past deliberations and said there is the need to increase surveillance along the mountainous areas on the Nigerian side of the border where criminals take refuge. Sending collaboration between the Nigerian forces and a member of the committee vigilance by means of forecast intelligence. Increase patrol of the Nigerian mountain used as enrichment for criminals like the Congoli mountain. Increase patrols along the border. During the meeting, both sides exchanged criminal elements to be processed in their individual countries. The leader of the Nigerian delegation, Mohamed Umar, confirmed receiving Nigerians who were alleged to have committed crime in the Cameroon and said there will be increased sharing of information on security to make the job of securing lives and property easier. Sharing of information across border for security operation traditional leaders. The local government of Maya and the Cameroon border communities have a good rapport, especially in the aspect of sharing relevant information that are related to promotion of security that the Cameroonian security agents has also handed over some Nigerian citizens who commit crime in the Cameroon Republic for appropriate disciplinary action in Nigeria and vice versa. As we are near our home, the Nasarawa state governor, Abdullahi Suli, explained his state's plight at the hand of Boko Haram and the effort of security agents to help to have them dislodged. Governor Suli was in Abuja to brief President Buhari on the security situation in his state. Thank the security forces that they have been able to dislodge them. But now they have gone back and gathered at our border with Benue and they are causing a lot of havoc. When they dislodged them, a lot of them were killed. Some of them ran away and leave their members of the family. We took hostage about 900 members of that family into life here, including children and their wives. You know, so during the interrogation, they confirmed themselves that they were indeed Boko Haram. And some of them say they were remnants of the Darul Salaam uh, group that were dislodged from Niger. So they came and merged up and then became the Boko Haram. So that's where we got our confirmation that they were indeed Boko Haram from themselves. Therefore, it was an opportunity uh, Mr. President wanted to know, so I briefed him. And uh, I strongly believe, just like the decision was taken last time, take care of this and other decision will be taken to do this. There is uneasy calm in many communities within Nigeria over the activities of kidnappers and bandits with the killing of travelers on the highway by bandits who shoot at passing vehicles. Incidences of this nature have heightened fear amongst the people while government continued with efforts to secure the country. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato before Channel Africa News. South Africa's Acting State Security Agency Director General Louis Ojavda says the State Security Agency has suffered from selective adherence to the law, employees being given illegal instructions as well as corruption and theft. Jafda was testifying at the State Capture Commission, appoint, was appointed in 2018. He confirmed the use of the State Security Agency for political as well as factional struggles within the ruling ANC. Former chairperson of high-level panel of review into the State Security Agency, Sidney Mufamadi, outlined this in his testimony on Monday. Busi Chimombe reports. Minister of State Security, Ayanda Tloro, sought to muzzle Acting Director General Loiso Jafta, from giving evidence at the State Capture Commission on Tuesday. Rorro, through her lawyers, asked that proceedings be adjourned to allow her to file an affidavit relating to the content of Jafta's evidence, which she said may compromise state security. However, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo dismissed the application. 
has been enough time from the time that she got the Mr. Chafter's affidavit uh, last evening uh, up to this morning for her to have been able to say my concern that Mr. Chafter's evidence may threaten national security is based on the following which is in her affidavit. One, two, three. Here are the paragraphs that I'm concerned about. That has not been done. And you have made reference to certain other points including section 10.4 and 12.1. Uh, I don't think that they assist. So as things stand, I'm going to dismiss the application. Finally on the stand, Jafta confirmed the testimony of former chairperson of the high-level panel of review into the SSA, Sidney Mufamadi, regarding the use of the SSA in political battles. Particularly whenever we go towards an election, there would be projects that would be intended and funded to enhance the political fortunes of the ANC. And these projects were, were prosecuted. There's AMCO, which at the time appeared to be quite stronger compared to the MUM. And then the, the, the state security agency is used, is employed to found an alternative union that would weaken AMCO. Jafta says the organization was indeed involved in illegal operations, including the taking into custody without due process of former President Jacob Zuma's wife, Mantuli, in 2015. The SSA had launched an investigation into allegations that Mantuli was behind a plot to poison her husband. Jafta says there is no evidence, however, that Zuma gave such an instruction or knew about action taken against Mantuli. It does happen quite a lot, and it must have happened, that functionaries at various levels would anticipate what would be agreeable to the person of the president. What would please the president. What would please the president and take such in initiatives. Yes. Regardless of what the law says. So I don't want to create an impression that former President Jacob Zuma was always aware and consented to many of the things that were done, presumably for his benefit, either in his private capacity or in his public capacity. The acting DDG bemoaned the lack of proper governance of the SSA between 2009 and 2018, with millions of rands siphoned off through advance payments for projects and employees not being held accountable for their actions. To be sure, I believe money was stolen. Uh, people enriched themselves. Very fictitious projects could have been implemented. And we've got evidence to prove that. But there's other, there's other resources that were abused. Assets, firearms. They, they, these are resources of the state security agents of the state. The state gives us these firearms in order for us to discharge our responsibility from a defensive point of view. But when you have a situation where firearms of the state are then given out to non-SSA members, that constitutes resource abuse. In his just under three years in office, Jafta says he and his leadership team have sought to turn the ship around. The interventions they have instituted include stopping illegal projects such as providing VIP services to politically connected individuals, a function 
legally mandated to the SAPS. He says all those owing the organization money have had to return it, even if it meant using their pensions. Issues of oversight still need to be addressed, as well as the structure of the institution, which puts enormous power in a few hands, according to Jafta. That report by Busi Chimombe. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The health department in South Africa's Western Cape province has briefed traditional practitioners, healers and herbalists about the COVID-19 vaccines. The traditional health practitioners say while they are not opposed to the vaccines, it's up to individuals to choose whether to take them or not. The vaccination of traditional health practitioners falls under the first phase of the rollout in the province. Mlamli Maneli reports from Cape Town. The province plans to vaccinate just over 100,000 health workers in the first phase of the vaccine rollout. This includes staff in the private and public sector. According to the provincial traditional health practitioners sector, there are 35,000 health practitioners in the province. It's not clear how many vaccines will be available for the sector during the first phase. Western Cape Health Minister Noma French Mbombo. No, they welcome the first part that they are part of the first phase. But um, what they are saying is about there have been many issues related to the screening and testing and all of those where they should have been involved. So they do welcome that part because they will work that they do, uh, like is bathing someone. And also it's about uh, giving enema to someone, all of those. It warrants a closer proximity of less than 1.5. But they are indicating that they will be able uh, just to mobilize as many because they are a, a, a recognized official council, like in the provincial aspect of it, uh, where they can mobilize, but the individuals will make a call whether they want to have a vaccine or not. A lack of consultation at the onset of the pandemic has been cited among the sector's concerns. Traditional health practitioners such as Lukolom Kwekwa have also lamented insufficient research into the role of traditional medicines in treating COVID-19. The concerns are that, firstly, we had Umfanyana, which is mainly used by African traditional healers. We've got other indigenous herbs like Kamakuli, the Tantris and so on, that the traditional healers have used to cure the clients and so on. Now the vaccine comes on board, we are not against the vaccine, but we are not the Western people, we need to understand it. Mokhejwa says the sector needs more information on the vaccines in order to properly advise communities. The next community engagement is said to take place in Kukuletu. Amlamle Maneli in Cape Town. 
It's 7.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Freedom of Religion South Africa has filed papers in the Johannesburg High Court to ask that government's current and indefinite ban on faith-based gatherings be lifted. Specifically, the organization is asking for the religious sector to be treated equally to places such as casinos, health clubs, cinemas and restaurants, where gatherings of up to 50 people indoors and 100 outdoors are permitted. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Michael Swain from Freedom of Religion, South Africa. Michael, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu, and good morning to your listeners. Now, Michael, why have you brought this challenge before the courts? The reason we brought the challenge is because we can see, I think, increasingly clearly that there is an unequal scale between how government is treating the religious sector and how it is treating other sectors of the economy. So, for example, we cannot understand, and we are, in fact, now asking government to give us the scientific data upon which they rely as to why there is greater risks of infection, for example, between people sitting in a church building in a pew, perhaps, or separate chairs, socially distanced, with proper hygiene and safety and health protocols in place, and the same two people sitting together side by side in a casino. Why is a faith-based gathering particularly, therefore, um, risky and maybe a high-risk spreader, and a casino not, or a restaurant for that matter, or a health club for that matter? So we, we simply believe that there must be equality. And at face value, this is unfortunately unfair discrimination against the religious sector. Now, do you think that you have a case and that uh, you will succeed with the court battle? Yes, I think we have an excellent case because the Constitution can only be limited, uh, subject to Section 36 of our Constitution, if that limitation is justifiable and reasonable and proportionate and equitable. And, of course, religion has greater constitutional protection than any other sector of the economy. And when you can see that the government is treating, or at least we believe the government is treating, and that's why we're asking for the evidence, uh, one sector of the society differently from the religious sector, the religious sector is literally banned, permanently closed, all faith-based gatherings, whereas other sectors are allowed to operate, obviously under certain stringent conditions, but nevertheless still allowed to operate. Why are churches being treated differently? We believe that this is unfair discrimination, and that, of course, is something which the Constitution also forbids. Now, just looking at this challenge going forward, uh, in terms of timeframes, what timeframes are we looking at? Because we saw um, there were protests at uh, the union buildings uh, and, uh, you know, the there wasn't much of a response. So what do you think that the government will do going forward? We believe that this is something best settled in a court of law because it is ultimately a legal issue. Uh, the case has been set down in the Johannesburg High Court for the 2nd of February, which is next week. And obviously, it will then be considered. But I think it's important to say, when I'm speaking of support, that there are signatories to the application that we filed, representing 11 million people from the faith communities of South Africa, particularly from the uh, indigenous and spiritual churches of South Africa. So we do believe that this is something which has got a very significant support uh, from a broad cross-spectrum of the faith-based community. Now, Michael... 
what role within communities can churches and other religious establishments play in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think they have been playing that already. I mean, religious leaders have been at the forefront of providing relief and comfort, support, feeding schemes to their congregations and even to the broader society during the pandemic. And I think that's another very important point that you raise. Why should, for example, a restaurant owner have the uh, ability or the freedom to open or not uh, his restaurant, but a faith-based leader, a religious leader, is simply not allowed to have that same prerogative. And we, again, think that's part of the unfairness. Not that you have to open your venue. I mean, we know that this is a serious pandemic and we know that it's costing lives. But we believe that at the very least, they should have the same prerogative. And equally, their parishioners or their congregants should have the same uh, ability to assess their own health risks as to whether or not attend in the event that their venue is open. But it is at base an equity issue. It's an equality issue. It's, it's an issue where the faith community is being treated, we believe, unfairly in a discriminatory way, in an unconstitutional way. And we cannot see the rationale behind that. And that is exactly what we're asking the court to ask the government to provide. Show the evidence upon which you base this disparity of treatment. Would you say that uh, churches are easy targets? Well, it is true in one sense that the uh, government does appear to have treated the faith uh, community differently from other sectors of society throughout the pandemic. For example, right when the original uh, regulations and the framework was posted, religious gathering or religious organizations, uh, religious workers were not even mentioned, which means that literally at that point had it stood, we would not be allowed to function, operate or open our venues until the whole thing has passed, until we are beyond level one. So, again, I don't think government has necessarily thought through uh, this properly or given their mind to it as they should. We have written of Freedom of Religion South Africa at times representing over 18 million people to government. And we have had consultations. We have met with the Minister Nkosazana at Lamini Zuma. We have been in one meeting with the President. But unfortunately, before this last regulation was passed, which, as I said, prohibited religious gatherings, we were actually not in that meeting. And we're also saying to government, we need to please be heard because we represent a very significant democratic constituency. Now, the court application was uh, postponed to the 2nd of February, uh, which is, uh, I think, sometime next week, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Do you know, how can South Africans, ordinary people assist in this uh, um, high court application? I think very importantly, stay informed and you could go to our website where you can, in fact, download the court papers if you so desire. You can see our press releases and our updates on it. And also, we clearly, Freedom of Religion South Africa is a non-profit, but we are dependent upon support. So you can also click that all-glorious donate button and uh, donate and help us to fight, because legal actions obviously are expensive. But we do believe, unfortunately, that in this instance, it is necessary and worthwhile. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you so much. That's Michael Swain from Freedom of Religion South Africa joining us on the line. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. 
Hi, my name is Tandalun Yenzovo, and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 7.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, the army in Mali says it has killed 100 jihadists in a joint offensive with French forces. Morocco is set to become the latest country in Africa after Egypt to roll out a vaccination program against COVID-19. And a large number of Republicans in the U.S. Senate have voted against proceeding with the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And two people have died in South Africa and an unconfirmed number of people have been displaced by Tropical Storm Eloise. 
South Africa's Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister Dr. Ngosazana Tlaminizuma, accompanied by MECs from Bumalanga, Limpopo and KwaZulu-Natal provinces, updated the nation on the tropical storm and heavy, heavy downpours that are being experienced in some parts of the country. Maluti Obuseng reports. Tropical cyclone Eluis hit Mozambique over the weekend, where it caused massive damage to infrastructure and several fatalities. As it moved inland, dumping heavy rain over areas of Eswatini, South Africa and Zimbabwe, it was downgraded to a tropical storm. Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister Nkwasazana Dlamini Zuma says the worst is not over. We have been coordinating because the Disaster Management Center nationally has been coordinating with the disaster management centers in those three provinces. But we are tracking the storm and the weather service colleagues will give us more updates. But the storm has now moved to southern Botswana, but we are informed that it will come back into South Africa again and maybe more provinces like Northwest Free State. In Limpopo, houses were destroyed, roads damaged and bridges collapsed. In the blowback area, one house was destroyed, while in Musina, seven houses were destroyed. The Limpopo Cooperative Governance, Human Settlements and Traditional Affairs MEC is Biscop Makamu. We received a report about 78 families have been displaced due to the collapse of the houses or their houses has been flooded with water. And mainly these are in Bembe district. The biggest number is in Makado local municipality, the area of Chakuma. But also there are a number of a few houses, about three houses in Tulamela municipality, which also one house collapsed, the roof was taken away and the intervention was done. In KwaZulu-Natal, areas affected include Umkanyakute and Zululand districts. Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, MEC, Sipotlomuka. Under Umkanyakute district, 280 households have been affected through a storm and 916 people coming from that household have been affected and we indicated that we have 175 houses that have that have completely destroyed by the, the storm and a number of roads and bridges that have been also affected. In Mpumalanga, the affected areas are Mbombela and particularly Bushback Ridge. Cooperative Governance Acting Head of Department is Sam Ngubani. Uh, starting with the city of Mbomela, we had five houses that were structurally damaged, partially, not totally. But it is in Bushbuck Ridge that we have experienced a large number of houses and also families that were actually left displaced and had to be accommodated somehow with the temporary shelter. That's about 60 houses in Bushbuck Ridge, especially in the area called Mkulthu as well as Palkata. Meanwhile, government can't at this stage confirm the budget allocation as the disaster response is a multi-sectoral plan comprising different provinces and municipalities. However, Dr. Mpaka Tau of the National Disaster Center urges South Africans to be on high alert. People living in low-lying areas must take special care during storm as sudden floods might affect them. So take special care. 
to ensure that you don't just cross rivers without checking whether the water could be of the volume that could endanger yourself. Secondly, do not cross through flooded roads or bridges, use other roads. Even if it means taking a long route, it's better that you delay a little bit and to risk your life. South Africa has not declared any of the areas a disaster area because it has adequate capacity and resources to respond to the needs of affected communities. I'm Maluti Ubuseng in Pretoria. South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa says the 1.2 billion rand tourism equity fund will help the sector bounce back from the impact of a coronavirus pandemic and once again make a meaningful contribution to the economic recovery plan. The Department of Tourism will capitalize the fund with an amount of 540 million rand, a further 120 million rand from a small enterprise and finance agency and 594 million rand from commercial banks. It will provide a combination of grant funding, concessionary loans and debt finance to qualifying participants. Addressing the launch, the president says the fund aims to accelerate the participation of black entrepreneurs in the sector. Amina Akram reports. Struggling small businesses in the tourism sector received a boost from government's newly launched Tourism Equity Fund. President Cyril Ramaphosa has called the launch groundbreaking and expects it to speed up transformation in the sector. The Tourism Equity Fund was established by the Department of Tourism in partnership with Small Enterprise Finance Agency. This to deepen transformation and grow small businesses in the sector. Global travel tourism is expected to have experienced losses of up to $5 billion in 2020. This as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. In South Africa, many jobs have been lost, including its value chains. Ramaphosa elaborates. This launch is taking place when the tourism industry is admittedly facing severe challenges. From the smallest B&B to major hotel chains, from local tour companies to airlines. Now, this industry supports about one and a half million direct and, in, and indirect jobs. These figures should be and must be higher. It stimulates and supports the development of small businesses. It is also one of the economic segments that can play a pivotal role in the transformation of the economy. The fund will actively support black-owned businesses in the sector, women, people with disabilities and young entrepreneurs. Ramaposas urge those who are interested to apply to the fund starting this week. The Tourism Equity Fund is informed by the recognition that the capital-intensive nature of the industry prevents many black-owned tourism enterprises from growing as well as developing by providing access to finance for black-owned commercially viable tourism projects. The Tourism Equity Fund intends to address this challenge. As a combination of grant funding, concessionary loans and debt finance, the fund will cater to the specific needs of black-owned businesses to acquire equity, to invest in new developments or expand existing developments. 
president of Black Business Council, Sandy Lezungu. We're very pleased that uh, in your conceptualizing this uh, very important fund, uh, you've gone beyond uh, just the issue of uh, equity uh, or grant and debt to actually saying, yes, once these infrastructures are funded, then where to from here? Market access is very important. We as a Black Business Council would like to make ourselves available, Martin, uh, to work with your institution. The fund will focus on hospitality and accommodation-related services, such as lodges, hotels, resorts and backpackers. It will also fund those in travel tourism, which includes tour operators. Businesses will also receive non-financial support from the Department of Small Business Development. This including market access, technical and mentorship support. Market access is a major challenge for majority of businesses, even when they have access to funding. And part of our non-financial support will include assistance with market access. And we are also committing to do investment monitoring and support throughout the journey of this funding package. That report by Amina Akram. The Western Cape Provincial Government in South Africa says visitor numbers at most of the province's popular tourist attractions dropped by more than 60% during the festive season. The situation has been blamed on the adjusted lockdown regulations. Corbin August has more. Popular tourist attractions in the Western Cape, which have reported a sharp decline in visitor numbers, include Robben Island, the Table Mountain Aerial Cableway, and the Cape of Good Hope. Alert Level 3 lockdown regulations such as the curfew, the closure of beaches and the ban on the sale of alcohol are some of the restrictions which have led to low tourist numbers. Provincial Minister of Economic Opportunities David Maynir says he'll write to national government asking that the restrictions be eased. Considering the evidence that the Western Cape has passed its peak and the demand on our health services is stabilizing, I will write to the Minister of Tourism calling for the immediate easing of restrictions in respect of the curfew, the closure of beaches, the on-site consumption of liquor in restaurants and similar establishments, as well as following the tasting and selling of liquor at wineries and wine farms. The Table Mountain Aerial Cableway says it has cancelled some of its offerings to visitors so it can remain operational during the current lockdown. Managing Director Wahida Parker says times are tough for the tourism sector. One of the most impactful things that we needed to do was not to offer our sunset special, which is very popular and because that would have meant that we would not be able to abide with um, curfew regulations as our staff would then only be able to leave the site way after nine o'clock. The iconic Robben Island Museum in Cape Town says its visitor numbers for December dropped by 90% due to the revised Level 3 lockdown regulations compared to the same period in 2019. The World Heritage Site is amongst many of the popular tourist attractions in the Western Cape impacted by the revised regulations. Robben Island Museum spokesperson Melanie Kin says they are now working hard to ensure the museum's short-term sustainability. Despite offering value-added discounts to encourage local visitors, the economic conditions facing so many South Africans renders this experience beyond their reach. 
Right now, one of our most pressing challenges is our short-term sustainability. The number of active COVID-19 cases in the Western Cape has decreased by 50% over the last two weeks, from more than 40,000 to around 19,000. Just over 263,000 people have tested positive for the virus in the province, with more than 234,000 recoveries thus far. Around 10,000 people have died from the virus in the province. I'm Corbin August in Cape Town. Violence erupted across India's capital city, New Delhi, on Tuesday when thousands of farmers protesting the government's agricultural reform bills rode tractors past police barriers and clashed with officers. Farmers had been protesting on the outskirts of New Delhi for months. They are demanding the repeal of three agriculture laws passed by government in September that aim to deregulate wholesale produce markets. Farmers fear they'll lose price guarantees, though the government insists that's not the case. Niha Punya has more. It was supposed to be a peaceful protest, with farmers saying they'd drive thousands of tractors into Delhi to simply prove a point that they would not give up till the government scrapped the new agricultural laws. But from the very onset, the protest turned violent. Farmers did have permission to march into Delhi on Tuesday, but thousands of protesters broke away from the official route. They breached barricades, hurled stones, tore down concrete roadblocks and vandalized buses as the police attempted to stop them. In just a few hours, India's capital was overrun by a convoy of trucks, cars, motorcycles and thousands of farmers on foot. Police teams used tear gas, water cannons and sticks to push the farmers back in some places. But as the number of protesters continued to swell, police teams and riot gear were outnumbered in many places. And thousands of farmers managed to march all the way to central Delhi, where they briefly occupied the iconic Red Fort. Some farmer unions have now distanced themselves from the violence, alleging that their protest has been peaceful for two months and Tuesday's clash was orchestrated not by farmers but by outsiders. The central government has also suspended internet services in some parts of Delhi in a bid to cut off communication between protesters. Farmers are demonstrating against three new laws that will allow private companies to buy their produce. Farmers claim this will hurt their livelihoods and help big firms instead. The government has offered to suspend these laws for a year and a half, but protesters say they want them scrapped. The government has held several rounds of talks with protesting farmers over two months, but all of those talks have ended in an impasse. Agriculture employs more than 50% of the country's massive population, and many believe that this is the biggest challenge Prime Minister Modi has faced since he first came to power in 2014. Neha Punya, New Delhi. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Lohoku. Good morning, I'm Tabi Solohoku. Kenya plans to more than double the amount of electricity that the power producers can generate, a move that would see consumers pay dearly to support idle power. This as the state continues to pursue the combination of adequate energy to fire industries as well as the elusive cheap power. This would, however, see consumers foot the extra bill. National Treasury budget documents indicate that the government plans to increase the country's electricity generation capacity to 6,000 
700 megawatts from the current 2,819 megawatts. Pan-African Natural Resources Company, Matalan Corporation, has been accused by artisanal miners in Zimbabwe of shortchanging them through the subsidiary King's Daughter Mining Company Limited, which owns and operates Red Wing Mine. Red Wing Mine is located in the Penalonga and Sphingwe wards in Mutasa district. Kenya's... Uh, Standard Chartered Bank has been named the best overall bank of 2020 in Kenya by the recently released Kenya Bankers Association 2020 Customer Service Survey. The survey, done by the association, had over 15,000 respondents, including 455 persons living with a disability, and covered all the Kenyan counties. The bank also emerged overall best in responsiveness and digital experience in 2020 in the Tier 1 category. The trustees of National Bank of Malawi Pension Fund have migrated the bank's ex-employees' benefits from the fund to Nico Life Insurance Company, effective 1st January 2021. The bank's Pension Administration Limited Chief Executive Officer, William Mabulekesi said the move had been necessitated because of the differences in risk profiles for active employees and pensioners. He said the concerned members are those who retired before, on or before 31st May 2014. Rwanda is engaging partners and private sector to promote a mobility that could see phased adoption of electric buses, private cars and motorcycles with the goal to reduce conventional vehicle sales, transport fuel imports which are associated with gas emissions. Approximately one in five trips in the capital Kigali are taken by petrol-fueled motorcycle taxis, contributing to poor air quality, high demand for imported fuel and rising greenhouse gas emissions. It's a Channel Africa from an African perspective. It's 7.49 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Figile Patrice Mutipe given the go-ahead. Yeah, yeah, at least now we know that now it's into the other stage. Mm. You know, this was the very difficult stage. You mm-hmm. have to get approval from CAF, mm-hmm. but not CAF only, even FIFA, the world's football's governing body. Mm-hmm. But now it's up to them. There are about four now, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll see who's going to, to take it for, for the next four years. Oh, well. We wish him the best of luck. Yes. Give us an update. And in this hour, in our sports update, we begin with Olympic news. The board of the International Olympic Committee is meeting today, and all reports indicate that the cancellation of the Tokyo Olympic Games is not on the agenda. The IOC says athletes are being vaccinated in some countries, with Paralympic athletes among the vulnerable. But the IOC will not stipulate that participants have to be vaccinated in order to take part. Dan Olowitz is a sports writer for Japan Times, and he told us that he doesn't believe travel bans will be imposed on countries with the new variants of COVID-19. I don't think that you can have 
at Olympic Games uh, without athletes from the US, from the UK, from, from South Africa, from Brazil. I, I think that that's an incredibly slippery slope. Uh, obviously in the past, uh, countries have abstained from participating in the Olympics for political boycotts. Uh, that sort of situation does happen, but this is something entirely different. Uh, I feel as though the, the narrative that the IOC and that organizers have been pushing is for these games to be a triumph of humanity. The South African billionaire and owner of the DSTV premiership side, Mamelodi Sundowns, Petrus Mutsipe and Mauritania's Ahmed Yaya, have been cleared to run for the Confederations of African Football, CAF presidency, despite previous doubts over the Jewish eligibility. FIFA's review committee has said both men can contest the 12th of March elections where they will take on Ivorian Jacques Amuna and Senegal FA President Augustin Senghor. The candidacies of Mutsepe and Yaya were thrown into doubt earlier this month. On the 8th of January, a CAF statement said further checks were necessary before a final decision on Mutsepe and Yaya, who has led Mauritania's football association since 2011. March's elections will take place in the Moroccan capital Rabat, with the victor serving four-year term. And Kosafa nations, Mozambique and Namibia, have learned their fate after the draw was made for the 2021 Africa Under-20 Cup of Nations that will be staged in Mauritania from the 14th of February to the 4th of March. Mozambique have been drawn in Group A alongside the hosts Cameroon and Uganda, with the top two teams in each pool advancing to the knockout stages. The exact dates of the matches have yet to be announced, but the young members will open the campaign against the Ugandans before a meeting with Mauritania and then a final pool clash with Cameroon. Namibia have been drawn in Group B and opened the tournament against Central African Republic. They will then clash with Tunisia and then finish the pool play against Burkina Faso. And three wickets apiece by Shabnim Ishmael, Sune Luz and Ayabonga Kaka proved key in helping the Momentum Proteas women complete a 32-run win over Pakistan and with it, a 3-0 series whitewash after the final one-day international at Hollywood Beds Kingsmead Stadium in Deben on Tuesday. Fast bowler Ishmael claimed an impeccable 3-for-22, fellow Sima Kaka took 3-for-29 and Captain Luz nabbed the 100th wicket for South Africa with a 3-for-35. Those strikes ensure the host defended 202 by restricting the Tories to 169 in the process, securing the biggest win of the three-match contest. It was also South Africa's sixth consecutive ODI with and a win after they overcame New Zealand by the same margin when they toured that country last year. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Well, that wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagadza, technical producer Pisoma Shekho and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za Tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Pumuto's Choice. Uh, goodbye and keep safe. <laughs>